just a real quick note uh, as you're turning there, and I forgot to do something here. I apologize for this. Real quick note as you're turning there. Um, on Wednesday evening, the prayer meeting, uh, we've, we've canceled that for this week, and, and, um, and so we'll try again next week, but we'll keep you updated on that. But our Wednesday evening prayer meeting and, and uh, book study will we'll wait until uh, another week. Uh, but once again, Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll read verses 21 through 31. And we're going through Isaiah. We won't take the whole chapter because there are a lot of chapters in the book of Isaiah. But we're getting started, and, and we have been for a couple of weeks now, and and these first five chapters are really an overview of everything that's going on uh, around Isaiah in Judah and Jerusalem and, and uh, in, in Israel. Judah and Israel are, are two separate things right now. Kind of, uh, They don't really get along that well at, at all times. But, but throughout the ministry of Isaiah, things are happening, and, and we're getting kind of the the, the groundwork of that in these first five chapters. And, and in chapter one, we saw the religious life of Judah and how that was tainted and, and just a formality, no real true faith in that and how it was showing itself in the, the social situation. And, and we're going to pick up on that social uh, situation again as, as we see more of of uh, Judah and how it has become unfaithful and uh, and and it starts uh, as a lament I'll just tell you that right up front as as we go to reading it that first word in my translation is how and in the Hebrew uh, that's a, a word that will typically lament. and and so this is a, a a lament if you will as we read this part of Isaiah it's chapter 1 beginning at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, 
and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this laments and what it can teach us. And so as we look at it, we pray that you will speak to our hearts, that we may digest your word and grow from it, nourished by your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, it's a lament. And uh, the, the theme is uh, vanished glory, if you will. Uh, Derek Kidner uh, writes about this, this passage. Um, Only the moral loss is lamented, he writes. Not David's empire or Solomon's wealth, simply their justice. The, the righteousness is gone. And that's what we see here is, is the morality is gone. And that's what's being, that's what's being uh, lamented. You know, sometimes when we see things go bad, we wonder, well, what's God going to do to us? As though if we lose something, that, that's what we lament. But here, Kidner's pointing out, no, it's the loss of morality. That's what's being lamented. And for those of you that uh, know me and, and have been around me for a while, you know I love my chiasms. And I've refrained from pointing these out for a while, but we have one that is so clear in this passage and somewhat important that I will point this chiasm out. And what I like about them is, is a chiasm, it, it, it starts with a point, and then you, you move to another point, and, and then another point, however many you go, and then you work your way back in, and, and so you kind of start with how you, or you end with how you started, either in comparison or, or contrasting. But what I love about chiasms is it, it tells you where the hinge is, where, where it goes from one point and then starts turning around again, and we can clearly uh, see that when we look at verses 21 through 26. So, so let's start by just pointing out this chiasm. In verse 21, the very first part of it is we have the faithful city. You will see that there. And, and actually, it's going to be the, the collapse of the faithful city at the beginning of verse 21. So that's our, our starting point, and, and we'll move out and then back in again and and. And, and notice at the end of verse 26, where we end, we're back to the, the faithful city again. But, but here it's the restoration of the faithful city. And, and so let's, let's take our little steps along the way here. We, we start in, at the beginning of verse 21 with the collapse of the faithful city. And then at the end of verse 21, we have uh, the, the past and present contrasted, if you will, that justice is replaced by murder. Now, at the beginning of verse 26, you'll see the, the other side of that, where justice is restored in the judges. 
uh, the, the next step out, if you will. The values turned to dross in verse 22, and it's a metaphor, uh, but when you look at verse 25, the dross is purged as, as that would make its way back in again. And then those middle two verses that, that serve as our hinge, in verse 23, we have corrupt leaders, and in verse 24, we have the divine sovereign, and that's when things start to change. And so, again, we, we start with the, the collapse of the faithful city. We have justice replaced by murder. We have values turned to dross. We have the corrupt rulers. But then we turn, and we get the sovereign divine, the divine sovereign, and the dross purged, and justice restored, and, and uh, the restoration of the faithful city. You can kind of see how that works there. And, and so we will uh, start by looking at the corrupt part of it. The first th three verses, or, or verses 21 through 23, that is, of, of the, the corruptness, this once faithful city, which is no longer faithful. It was once full of justice, or righteousness lodged in her, it says in verse 21. But now, murderers. And justice and righteousness, as we go through Isaiah, you will notice that these two uh, hang out together. Justice and righteousness is a frequent pair throughout the book of Isaiah. And, and they're rooted in God's holiness. And, and the relationship, as we'll see throughout uh throughout Isaiah is, is this righteousness uh, embodies holiness, godliness in sound principles. And then justice is an expression of righteousness in, in sound precepts, in sound practice, if you will. They, they go together. Thinking righteously will lead to uh, righteous actions, if you will, which then gets described as justice. And that's why they're, they're so closely aligned in the book of Isaiah. But, but here we have this, this faithful city that was full of righteousness and, and justice, but now they're unfaithful. And, and as we saw uh, earlier in this chapter and, and see again, the outcome of their unfaithfulness to God is unfaithfulness to people, to others. And, and their silver, it says in, in verse 22, your silver has become dross and your best wine mixed with water. And in this, as I mentioned, it is a metaphor. And, and notice this, it's, it's the silver has become dross. You know, for those of you who uh, went to school back in the days when I went to school, we had the old film strips, remember, and maybe in a science class you saw uh, at some point how they would uh, purify uh, silver or gold or something, and then there was that dross on top, that layer that they would kind of take off, and it was just junk. You know, it, it looked nice and sparkly, but it wasn't worth anything, and and, and the, the silver in there was, was the pure 
uh, silver, but, but here he's saying your, your silver has become dross. It's not like what we've scraped off the top, everything has become dross. And your best wine mixed with water, and, and when water mixes with wine, it's not as though there's one part that remains water and, and then the other part remains wine. It, it all gets diluted together. And that's how sin is. When sin enters, when this unfaithfulness to the Lord enters, it destroys the very nature and, and leaves no part uh, uninfected, if you will. Leaves no part untainted. You know, we call it total depravity or radical depravity. There's, there's some names we put with it. And, and in the Old Testament, Paul will write about it and others as well, how we are totally sinners, completely unrighteous, nothing good in us at all as sinners. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here as well. Totally worthless. Completely tainted. Matthew Henry uh, writes this, Dross may shine like silver, and wine that is mixed with water may retain the color of wine, but neither is worth anything. That's what Isaiah is getting at with Judah. Your sin has made you worthless. And your princes, uh, you're the, the ones who are, who are supposed to uphold justice and righteousness, look, look what they've become. They've, they've become rebels. And look who they're hanging out with. Their companions are thieves. They're associating with the, the, the wrong kind and, and, and they don't bring justice to the fatherless anymore. And, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And, and now this requires just a little bit of a, a history lesson here as we go back into the Mosaic law. Because as the law was given to Moses, and, and he would write it out for the people of Israel. And it's, it's in a few places. One of them is uh, Leviticus 25, about halfway through the chapter, is, is one of the places you'll find it. But what was supposed to happen uh, for the oppressed is there was supposed to be a way that they could get their property back. And, and if they had sold themselves into slavery, there was a way they could get their freedom back. So they could get their, their property back and they could get their freedom back and they weren't supposed to be uh, oppressed forever. The, the system was set up, in fact, that was a large part of the book of Ruth. If, if you recall the, the book of Ruth, Naomi left and, and uh, her family and, and she came back with, with only Ruth and they had nothing but there was a system set up where Ruth could go out and get them food and then Boaz uh, took care of her and made sure that, that she got, and then Naomi got taken care of and then uh, redeemed the field that, that her husband had walked away from. And, and you saw how that was supposed to work and, and that was it. The oppressed weren't supposed to be oppressed forever. They were supposed to have a system in place where they could get their things back. 
Everything could be redeemed. But, but what has happened here, as the princes, the rich, the upper class, as they got things, and as they had control, guess what they did? They started to change the rules so that those who were oppressed would just continue to be oppressed. And even the, the common person, what we might call the, the, the middle class person, was, was almost getting to be non-existent. They were getting to be more and more poor and more and more oppressed. And the rich people just kept getting more and more rich and would change the rules to continue to be that way. Uh, J. Alec Matier, who I uh, often quote uh, when I uh, study Isaiah, but he writes this, the widow and orphan are test cases of the quality of a biblical society. And, and he'll go to the Mosaic Law and, and point that out in scripture. And then he continues, the Lord looks to his people to be like him. And God also says that, care for the orphan and widow, because I do. But, as Matier continues, no one was allowed to stand in the way of self-advantage. So here, everything is subordinate to self-interest, so that those who bring needs rather than gifts are dismissed without thought. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Isaiah is speaking to Judah. That's what's going on here. But I do want to point out how we can relate to what's going on in Judah. We can look around the world. We can look at, at governments, some of the really oppressive governments where it's just the rich and then a whole bunch of poor and, and they don't really care about them at all. And they're actually quite vocal about it sometimes, quite open about not caring for the oppressed. And when you talk with missionaries or read some of their, uh, some of what they write, you can see that. We can even see it in the news in some of these areas where the oppression is great and the leaders don't care. But even, even then, if, if we want to bring it a little closer to home, uh, when you look at our very own way of, of governments, when you have big money donors and you have others with needs, guess who the politicians listen to first? Guess who gets attended to first? Kind of a, a, a silly example, but I think one we can all relate to. I've, I've lived in many different cities as I've grown up and, well, mostly as I've I left college and had different jobs starting out and would end up in different places. And here's one thing I can tell you about pretty much all of these cities that I've lived in. You can tell who has the money and, and the neighborhoods that don't have money not only by the houses, even if you were to block off the houses and couldn't see those, but you could tell by the road itself. The nice, perfectly uh, colored road with, with bright lines and, and, and lights that are bright, you know, shiny and bright and light up the whole street. 
And then you go to this other neighborhood and you're afraid to drive your car because you have no idea how deep that pothole is and it's been there forever. And you can't hardly see it because none of the street lights are working anyhow and there's no paint on the road. You can tell who is getting listened to and who isn't. And then that's kind of a silly example, but I just want us to see how we can relate to what Isaiah is saying here. The ones who get listened to on, on even small things. And, and then, of course, when we look around the world on, on big things. The thing with Isaiah, and, and I was talking with someone uh, after uh, last week, is, is Isaiah does not pull his punches. You know, he doesn't let up on us. He hits hard, and he hits a little close to home sometimes, so much so that we can understand things about Judah in this really kind of uncomfortable way. But as, as we've made our way through this, this chiasm, we're kind of at the low point here when we get to verse 23. We're at the, the, the low point, but we turn the corner and we see the hinge and, and ultimately this is, this is about God and God's mercy. We go from the earthly princes to the supreme king and we see that the reformation of a people, if I can use that term, the reformation of a people is God's own work. And that's what God does. In verse 24, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. We have this good assemblage of words here. Point out the majesty of God, the, the Lord of hosts, the angelic army that is led by the Lord, the, the mighty one of Israel, the sovereign one. Uh, to quote Matthieu again, I love how he says this, the Lord's sovereignty and power are neither ornamental nor irrelevant, but a force to be reckoned with in the affairs of his people. And that's what Isaiah is saying. We've got this God, mighty God, and he's making a declaration. And the declaration is this. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and, and uh, smelt away your, your dross. And notice here the Lord, he's, he's identifying with the oppressed. He comes as their defender, as their vindicator and also notice this those who are uh, rebellious the the sinners he calls them foes and enemies sometimes we like to believe that even the, the rebellious person. There's something good in that person. It's just the sin. It, it's kind of that sometimes a, a trite statement, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. But when we come to passages like this and we see the rebellious, God calls them enemies and foes. 
there's a warning in this. I will turn my hand against you. And that's in the Old Testament is always a hostile action. I will turn my hand against you. Yet here we see that it introduces this work of restoration. Even, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. And once we get the sovereign Lord in here, that's, that's when things get better again, because he says in verse 26, I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And then in verse 27, he mentions Zion, and, and we get this idea of Jerusalem. And that brings to mind something else that we have to go back in history for a little bit. Because he will call to mind Jerusalem, and, and this becomes more obvious as we move on in the chapters, chapter 2 and beyond. But, but Isaiah is pointing us back to King David here when he starts talking about Jerusalem. Because it was under David that Jerusalem first became a capital city the city of righteousness. And that's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, I believe. And, and so Isaiah, he starts talking about these fulfillment of the Davidic promises, the promises for God's people, promises for the city, the, the new Jerusalem, if you will, the promises of a Davidic king, this king who will come from the line of David and change everything. And he's hinting at that right in here. Uh, I have a, a friend in Wisconsin. Um, actually, he's a retired pastor, uh, but he blogs. His name is uh, Dwayne Matz, and I used to work with him. And I believe his blog is called Primetime Devo. Uh, he's He's got this great sense of humor and uh, great insight. And, and he actually, a while ago, started uh, blogging through Isaiah. And, and he split this passage up a little differently than I did. I, I like to read what he writes after I come up with my ideas. And, and I like what he did with it, though. And let me just real quickly kind of explain what he did with it. He splits the passage uh, three ways. And and he splits it, verses 21 to 23, as immediate prophecy. Uh, destruction is coming, and, and it does, by the way. That, that happens not too long after Isaiah writes all of this. But then, verses 26 and 27, he puts as near future prophecy. It, it's still a few hundred years away, but it's, it's the coming of Christ. And then... 28 and beyond, he calls that the far future prophecy when Christ comes back and there is judgment. And I like the way he splits that up, but, but I like what he writes then about verses 26 and 27. Du uh, Duane writes this, in verses 26 and 27, we read of a time of restoration. This would be the coming of Christ. He would set up judges, let's call them apostles, and his church would be populated by the penitent redeemed and once again become a beacon of righteousness, justice, and faithfulness to God. And when we look at verses 26 and 27, 
It's the same topic, but notice in 26, it's a fact. And in 27, it's an explanation. In 26, he just says, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And then in uh, verse 27, he starts to talk about, and here's how I'm going to do it. Zion shall be redeemed, the Lord's work of redemption. And those in her who repent by righteousness, the response of human repentance there. And when we see redeemed, we're reminded that the Lord is not overlooking sin. Not that he's just going to turn his back and pretend it's not there, but that he himself will satisfy the claims of his holiness. He himself will shed his blood on the cross that we may be redeemed. And those who repent, when we look at that word repent, this is not some meritorious work on our behalf offered to God, but rather it's a response to the fact that his righteous claims have been met. It's a response to the fact that he has redeemed us and we repent and we bring him that sin and we praise him for our redemption. And there is, in this word repents, there is this idea of the change of the mind resulting in a new direction, a Godward direction. Things change within us, within his people. However, those who continue to rebel, we see that in verses 28 and beyond, they, the rebellious, the sinners, they shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord will be consumed. They'll be ashamed of the oaks they desired, blush for the gardens they have chosen. Now, now the people's formal religion, as, as we mentioned earlier in, in chapter one, their formal religion was uh, the, the Mosaic law, but it was just performed. They would come in with their sacrifices. There's no real faith. They would, they would live life how they wanted, come in with these sacrifices and then do that and walk away and it really meant nothing to them. That, that was their, their formal allegiance, but we can see here what their desire is, what they're choosing. And, and what it is is the, the nature and fertility cults of the day. There's idolatry here when he's talking about the oaks and the, and the gardens. They were, they were these um, uh, idols that were made, and, and as you would imagine, they were quite friendly idols that were being made and, and these fertility cults that they had, but they can offer no life. The, the leaf withers. They're without water. They can offer nothing. And, and even the, the strong here, uh, there's a spark and, and they'll burn and there's no water to quench it. Those idols, they can offer nothing. And he's pointing out true religion is, is more than, than human preference and that's where Judah has gone. We prefer to add this to our formal religion 
to bring in this idolatry, but, but re true religion is not based on our preference or even on our satisfaction, but it's based on the sovereign God. And Isaiah is, is grieving here at the loss of that, the loss of mercy, the loss of their faithfulness to God. God is lamenting that. And so what we have here is Judah as this example of, of this people unfaithful to God. This lament is about their morality and, and how it's affecting their society and, and their worldliness, their princes who are supposed to uphold uh, how the law is, is supposed to be and, and they've become corrupt. And, and so we can see it and we can relate even to it as Isaiah writes this. But then we ask the question, where does this leave us? You know, where, where does this put us? And, and as the church, as the New Testament church, what do we make of this? How do we learn from Judah's mistake? How, how do we shape our thinking? Or, or maybe, to put it just more clearly, how can we be a faithful city? Because that's what we want as children of God. How can we be a faithful city? And we go back to that chiasm, go back to that turning point, go back to the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, and dwell on his glory and his might and his redemption. Remember where our sin puts us, because sometimes we like to overlook our sin but remember where our sin puts us, totally and completely useless. Totally and completely corrupt. And we know our sin in our own lives. We can see sin in the world around us. We can see the treatment of people but we are to be the faithful city as a church and as individuals, members of that faithful city. Look how Paul puts it. Both Paul and Peter have some great things to say. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is the Redeemer. He's the one we build upon. He's that hinge that turns us from worthless into citizens of saints and members of the household of God. And Peter puts it this way, and, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's writing to what he calls the elect of the dispersion. These are people who have been spread out and, and are, what's their country, you know, and, and, and where's their, what's their ethnicity or whatever. They're kind of just spread out all over the place. And, and to them, Peter writes this, and, and it applies to God's people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this nation that Peter is writing about is God's people that extends beyond anything geographically, extends beyond any genealogy, if you will. These are God's people of his own possession who were once nothing but now made his. Once worthless, now his children. And the warning here is very clear about what happens to the rebellious, what happens to the sinners. And, and Isaiah certainly picks up on that theme later on, and we'll get to that again. But the warning is clearly here, and it causes us to want to remain faithful. The ungodly desires of this world, the, the choices that can seem so innocent at times. Oh, it's such a small concession we're making here. Such a small sin this is. But understanding how that sin destroys completely leaves no parts untainted. And we see this, we have seen this even in the church. Some big church, and there have been a lot of notable ones that have fallen. And you can kind of trace their fall back to sin. Usually it's pride. It starts with pride, and then you can see where the leaders of this church stop listening to those who might have an opposing voice. Uh, maybe some leaders just stop listening to everyone all together. And then how they start treating some of those people who, who aren't saying exactly what they want them to say. And we've seen churches fall, big churches, and big church leaders fall because of what started as really a small sin. But how do we remain faithful? We understand and reflect on who the Lord is, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, the one who redeems his people, the one to whom we repent, and the one who will keep us faithful by his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for being a God of mercy a God of grace. Though we have fallen in sin, at times even excusing it, overlooking it, thinking it's just a small sin without realizing the impact of even that small sin in our souls and in our lives and in our witness. And so we do cry out for your redemption. And thank you for it. 
May you keep our eyes open at all times to your ways and your truths that we may walk in them by the power of your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Amen.